0: When we return a sample from Mars, could we identify life in that sample?
1: Can we go there uh, and sustain ourselves without harming Mars if there's something on Mars that could be harmed?
0: Hi, I'm Jim Green, Chief Scientist at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. On this season of Gravity Assist, we're looking for life beyond Earth. here with Dr. Lisa Pratt, and she's the NASA's Planetary Protection Officer. Welcome, Lisa, to Gravity Assist. Hey, thank you, Jim. Well, you know, you've had a distinguished career in biogeochemistry and astrobiology, you know, and, and the Planetary Protection Officer name, that sounds really cool. In fact, I've received letters from kids all over the world, and one of them called your position the Guardian of the Galaxy. So I can't help but think that every time I talk to you. But let's start with the basics. What is planetary protection?
1: Jim, I wish I could tell you that I was, in fact, the guardian of the galaxy. But the reality is a little more mundane. Uh, Planetary protection is focused on... Uh, Limiting biological contamination of other worlds with terrestrial organisms, That's, that's organisms from Earth, and preventing the return of harmful potential extraterrestrial organisms or just organic materials when samples are returned to Earth during robotic sample return or in the future when astronauts come back to Earth from exploration missions to other worlds.
0: You know, we, we send things all over the place. And the next big mission is, of course, Perseverance. Uh, and it's going to Mars. And so when NASA wants to send a new rover to Mars, what do you do? Well, Jim, right from
1: the very earliest phase of mission design, when that, when that light bulb first comes on with an idea for a new mission, the Office of Planetary Protection provides advice and guidance Uh, to the engineering team on heat sterilization or alternative chemical cleaning methods such as vapor hydrogen peroxide. Some spacecraft materials can be cleaned and others cannot. And we want to be sure that we're designing a spacecraft that'll tolerate the cleaning procedures necessary to go to the three places we care about right now most deeply in terms of contamination, and that's Mars, Enceladus, and Europa. And when we have a mission that's being assembled for one of those locations, then there's actually an independent auditor from our office that travels to all the facilities where parts like solar panels or parachutes are being manufactured. And we take samples to determine the level of biological cleanliness. And every day I actually review data on the number of spores being sampled and detected on Perseverance as we get ready
0: for launch. So Lisa, what is a spore exactly? Is it biologically made up of many different things? Uh, Jim, a spore is a,
1: is a tiny microscopic resting cell that only certain types of bacteria can make. And and they make spores, a process called sporulation. Um, when the environmental conditions get get challenging, and, and it looks like uh, they're going to have to shut down, they're not gonna they're not gonna continue to be active. But in the process of making that that spore, that single cell entity, they wrap it in layers of highly resistant biopolymers. they seal it off and thereby they create um, the possibility of that spore later breaking open and turning back into a viable organism that can replicate and grow. So the reason going and this goes back to Viking. It's really the the Viking um, planetary protection biologists um, that that thought this through, and said of all of the entities known on earth that are biological the only thing we think that could get on a spacecraft not not be seen uh, in an inspection mm-hmm. and stay viable would be a hardy spore so we don't even we don't even monitor all of the spores which you would be monitoring if you were making medical devices uh, like, like implants and things like that, for us, we actually, we, we take a wipe of a spacecraft surface or we take a, a tiny little swab that looks like a slightly large Q-tip. And then we heat shock that sample to kill the wimpy organisms, because we only want to know how much contamination is there that could survive the journey, um, launch, yeah. travel, you know, crew stage, and, and the landing and the exposure to another planet. Uh, and that's, those are, those are the NASA standard assay, the NSA spores. There are international guidelines for spore cleanliness, and the total mission requirement for all spacecraft elements impacting Mars is 500,000 spores including the rover, aeroshell, descent stage, and parachute. That sounds like a lot, but the requirement is less than 300 spores per square meter of exposed rover surface. Spores are tiny, barely visible with a light microscope. So 300 spores per square meter can be scaled up and visualized as just 28 tennis balls on an entire football field. That's Thousands of times less than what our spacecraft would carry if we didn't build them in a clean room facility, if we didn't constantly wipe them with uh, cleaning uh, fluids specific to biological cleanliness, like 70% isopropyl alcohol, which is what we've all, we all now read the labels on our hand sanitizer uh, under the current pandemic to make sure that we're using at least 70%. It's just what we use on spacecraft.
0: Well, you know, what's riding with Percy, and I like that nickname Oh, I do too. So, uh, but what's riding with Percy is the Ingenuity helicopter. This is really a fabulous idea. It's what we call a technology demonstration, and we hope it works, but does that also have some sort of planetary protection requirements on it? Yes, it does. Uh, It's been held to about the same standards
1: as that upper deck of the rover, but not nearly as uh, rigorous as the sterilization for the sample tubes and drill or the wheels. And that's because it's a very different kind of activity. It it will not in any way uh, be associated with the return of samples to Earth. So part of what we're doing with the the tubes and the drill, is we're not just worrying about what we take to Mars. That's forward contamination. We're very concerned about what might come back uh, in those samples. That's backward planetary protection. And backward planetary protection ensures that we do not bring something harmful and release it into the terrestrial environment.
0: Well, you know, I think I have... Uh, one of these samples and a sample tube uh, right here with me. Uh, so when I was out at a JPL not too long ago, and I went into the lab where they uh, were testing the core, uh, you know, I, I I was able to walk out with one of the cores.
1: So oh, they look just, at that.
0: You know, took this, yeah, yeah. They just took this circular uh, tube that has a cutting mechanism and it cuts into the rock and then creates this core. Then they break it off. And then that is put into a sample tube. And that's what these, um, uh, the, the, the sample tube looks like. And as you say, these have to be cleaned really well. There are places on Mars I would dearly love to be able mm. to really interrogate. And one of those places is uh, what we believe, um, we call them reoccurring slope lineae. This is uh, these long lines of dark material that appear every summer. We now know that many of them, maybe not all, of them, but many of them uh, actually could be briny water. What would it take for for a rover in planetary protection uh, example to be able to go over and look at that a, a potential water streak coming out of uh, of a crater. Jim, that's a that's a really good question,
1: and and one that I think uh, the Perseverance rover drilling caching assembly uh, prepares us to do because we we have been successful in sterilizing at a high temperature for many many hours in a way that would meet the requirement for going into a place where we might encounter a liquid water environment. So I actually think that what we're learning uh, from this mission uh, to prepare for sample return is going to put us in a in a in a good place to actually design a mission where we're gonna we're gonna reach towards and and in some way sample one of these recurring slope lineae, which I usually just call RSLs because if I don't, I, it's a tongue twister. And I also yes. think that what we're learning with the, uh, the rock drilling system on Perseverance is how we might uh, clean uh, a drilling system that would melt drill into ground ice or, or rotary drill uh, into, a, into an ice cap.
0: So Curiosity landed in August of 2012, and so it's been there many years in that environment. Do we expect many spores to have survived on its surfaces? Jim, even if the, 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 physical entity
1: is there, because again, it's made out of uh, very resilient biopolymers. It's extremely unlikely that that spore is viable. Uh, and that's, and that's what matters here. What matters is that an organism can come back to life, grow and replicate and mm-hmm. spread. Um, and my feeling is, and, and I, 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 Love it if we had the opportunity to think this through. My guess is that the Curiosity rover is now clean enough that if it were to encounter uh, an RSL um, or uh, something interesting to explore, that it would be clean enough that we as an international community, because we we, we would probably discuss this through COSPAR, Uh, the Committee on Space Exploration, for which you are NASA's representative to the Planetary Protection Panel. I think we would conclude that that spacecraft is now as clean or even cleaner than what we could ever accomplish on Earth and get it to the launch pad and get it on its way.
0: Yeah, you know, for all the research that we have done, that really makes sense to me, too. Well, you know, big discussions are going on at NASA on how uh, we're going to send humans to Mars. What do we have to do to protect Mars and and protect the humans that are there? We
1: need to get a lot smarter than we are right now, and that's what we're <laughs> going to do at the Moon. You know, uh, the Artemis mm-hmm. campaign, the the Gateway, uh, the Gateway uh, orbiting facility. Uh, and and the, the, the sorties or extended missions down to the surface of the moon, that's, that's the proving ground for Mars, Jim. If we can study how the microbes from humans leak out of the cuffs of our space suit or get out of the, the mm-hmm. air handling systems in our habitats or trail along behind us on the wheels of our, of our vehicles then we'll learn how to prevent that, or we'll develop uh, technologies for sterilization of material when we're at Mars, and then we'll be able to do that exploration without causing harmful contamination of Mars. And I say that because we don't know right now. We, 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 We don't have the data we need to understand whether or not there's indigenous Martian life. We're pretty sure there's nothing at the surface because we've been looking. uh, We've been looking from orbit. We've been looking from rovers. We've been looking from platforms. We don't see anything with the characteristics of life as we know it on Earth. But subsurface, you know, uh, if it was ever there and it evolved and adapted... And I think it's quite possible it retreated into the subsurface where we believe there is to the present day liquid water um, below the ice table. And we certainly do not want to do something that would contaminate or compete uh, with a potential Martian life form before we've had a chance to study it and understand it. It would be our first, you know, our first contact. And and that's a, you yeah, know, that's a right. that's that's a one time only don't mess it up kind of, <laughs> you know, kind of event in exploration.
0: It would be. It would be. Well, you know, I'm going to spe- I'm going to speculate, but I'm going to think about a, a potential future. And that is, let's say we find life on Mars is it possible that we could, and, and it's below the surface, it's subsurface, maybe living in the aquifers where mm-hmm. there's water. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there's a l- lot of possibilities for that because we have an enormous amount of life below our feet, too, uh, in on this planet. Do you think we could get to the point where humans and these Martians could coexist? And, and what would that look like?
1: Well, Jim, uh, like you, uh, I'm sort of a hopeless optimist about what scientists and engineers are capable of doing, and I think it is possible. Uh, I, but I think we need to understand it uh, and and be aware of how we would bio barrier uh, or very carefully control our waste uh, and our agriculture, because if we're gonna mm-hmm. if we're gonna be up there for extended right. periods of time. Uh, we need to, we, we need to be able to grow our own food. And that's a very different yeah. microbiome from just the, you know, the human body, which we know has a, a signature. But when we start growing food, now we've got, you know, we've, we've got individual organisms that live on, in and on the roots of plants, uh, mycorrhizal fungi that have, you know, a distinct characteristic and 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 bacteria as well. So, we need to be very, very careful initially so we don't do something inadvertent and irreversible. And then I think there is a, there is a possibility in the future that we can be there and we can study, um, frankly, you know, we're going to have to learn if there is something in, in the subsurface, how to not have it get inside our habitats uh, and uh, in some way present uh, present harmful contamination to us. It's a very complicated, right. very complicated relationship it that is. we'll have to develop. But again, in the same way yeah. that the moon is the proving ground for Mars, I think mm. Mars is the proving ground for the extraordinary icy worlds that are out there uh, yeah. around around Saturn and Jupiter. Let's let's make sure we know what we're doing in a very dry, hostile cold terrestrial planet before we go to an icy moon i'm going to guess that you believe
0: there's life beyond earth
1: <laughs> <laughs> jim i would be absolutely flabbergasted if there was not life right. elsewhere in our solar system because i i think um evolutionary biology uh, has really, uh, really changed over just the past two decades. And once we began to realize that there is essentially no place on Earth that doesn't have uh, living, uh, mm-hmm. living organisms, it makes it very hard for me to think uh, that life only uh, got started here. The very fact that we don't know what the origin of life is on Earth, we don't have a geologic record that gets us back in time far enough with unaltered materials to know what the origin looked like on Earth also makes me wonder if the origin was someplace else and something mm. arrived on Earth uh, mm-hmm. ready to go okay. or partially formed. or uh, and, and any of those ideas uh, makes me keep my mind open uh, about life elsewhere in our solar system. If it's there... Any place else in our solar system? Then I think we will have to conclude that on the spectrum from, from rare to common, that it's going to be common. If we don't find any vestige um, of a life form any place else in our solar system, uh, that's
0: gonna you know that's gonna push us towards mm. rare. Well, you know, when you look out into the solar system, where do you think we will find it first?
1: I'm still cautiously optimistic about Mars because of the methane mystery. Mm-hmm. We see these these, mm-hmm. these pulses of elevated methane in the atmosphere, um, and not only do we have no explanation for where that methane comes from, we don't have an explanation for how that methane is removed from the atmosphere. We have a, a, a great mystery on Mars right now, um, and that's why as I, the, I the planetary protection officer, I want to see us continue to explore with a very, very careful uh, eye on forward contamination. That gets back to your question about can we go there uh, and sustain Mm. ourselves without harming Mars if there's something on Mars that could be harmed? Uh, Ultimately, I think it's a better bet to look in the, uh, the... the, uh, the oceans beneath the, the ice covers in mm. places like uh, Europa and Enceladus.
0: Let's say we brought the samples back uh, from Percy and now, we, now we've started to interrogate them. Do you think we know enough to be able to say these samples, we can delineate things that uh, we brought that actually have come back from those things that are indigenous to Mars?
1: Jim, that would, that would be a false positive. It, it would mean, uh, could we, or do we need to worry about uh, being confused and misidentifying something that made a round trip uh, with something that came from Mars itself? Uh, I frankly, um, and we've spent a lot of time discussing this with outside experts, uh, I have very little uh, worry about a false positive. And, and the reason for that is that we are archiving samples from the spacecraft, from the facility, from the launch pad, and we are storing and saving those samples for future study uh, so that we know uh, a great deal about everything that could have potentially gotten on that spacecraft and flown with us.
0: Wow, that sounds great. Well, you know, Lisa, I always like to ask my guests to tell me what was that event or person, place, or thing that happened to them that got them so excited about being the scientists they are today, and I call that a gravity assist. So, Lisa, what was your gravity assist? You know, Jim, it's hard for me to point to um, a single
1: event because I, I think you're aware uh, that I, uh, I had uh, quite a number of uh, not false starts, but moved, you know, moved down one path with my education and then said, this really doesn't interest me that much. I, I went off to college as a mm. Spanish major. Um, and and wow. uh, even though I had taken a lot of math and science in high school, Uh, and knew that knew that that was something I was good at. I just, I didn't see any role models. I didn't see any way that that was going to work out. Uh, And then uh, I realized that I really still fundamentally loved uh, biology in particular. Uh, So I started taking biology classes and then I decided I I didn't want to be Killing frogs in in biology labs. Mm. This was at a time when we were still working with live live animals in undergraduate labs, mm-hmm. and uh, had an a, an inspirational moment when I decided I'm a botanist. Uh, you know, plants plants don't don't bleed. So I actually transferred to the University of North Carolina mm-hmm. as a botany major. And then if there was a sort of, uh, pivotal gravity assist for me, it was in my, my senior year when I took my first geology course and the instructor, uh, John Dennison, uh, at Chapel mm. Hill, uh, had a way of talking about, uh, time travel, uh, through study of the geologic mm. record through stratigraphy right. that was so awe-inspiring, uh, that mm-hmm. I knew that I was, uh, even more passionate and more interested in, uh, the history, um, of life on earth and the evolution of life on earth, uh, through the study of ancient, uh, the ancient rock record. I was more interested in that than living plants. And so that's my, uh, mm-hmm. I guess that's, that's my, that's my gravity assist. Right. And it's, it, it's what serendipitously, uh, gave me a dual, uh, dual degrees in life sciences and earth sciences mm. that actually positioned me uh, ultimately to uh, oh. be competitive uh, for the planetary protection officer position when it was uh, uh, mm. advertised and opened uh, three years ago I was just so delighted that you applied What made you decide to do that uh, this is uh this is this is kind of a strange and wonderful story about role reversal. So um, a number of people, uh, both inside and outside NASA, had uh, had let me know that that the position was open. And I kept saying, no, nah, you know, uh, maybe 10 years ago, it's too late in my career. Um, and I made the mistake, well, maybe it was a mistake, maybe it was the best thing that could have happened. I was talking to my daughter about it uh She's a, a, a an engineering graduate student uh, at Stanford, and and I, I I said you know this position is open, and that began weeks of relentless uh, work on her part to wow. talk me into applying, and I kept saying no, it's just it's just too late, and then finally uh, one time uh, on a phone call, and this was Jim, this was. 3 days before the position was going to close for applications she said to me <laughs> so mom following your passion and and reaching for your dream job is advice you can dish out but you can't take it yourself and, and i was i was so shocked that uh, this 25 year old threw threw back at me yeah. what i throw at her that I actually said, I'm, you know what, I'm going to apply. I, I, I'll never be selected, but I'm going to apply. And for the rest of your wow. life, you're going to say to me, I'm so proud of you <laughs> for applying. Uh, and then, you know, the unexpected happened. And I have had the most wonderful two and a half years uh, to date. Um, yeah. of of being the planetary protection officer and helping uh, helping NASA find ways to not contaminate uh, forward or backward. Uh, it, it's it's a gift yeah. that uh, it's a gift that Isabel gave me.
0: Well, I got to tell you, I'm so proud of you for applying because uh, uh, I have enjoyed working with you over the last several years. It's just been a wonderful experience for me too well thanks so much for tagging up with me today to discuss uh what a planetary protection officer does and how they do it i've really enjoyed our discussion today
1: hey jim i'm just uh, i'm just delighted uh that you asked and we had a chance you caught me off guard uh with a couple of these questions but uh the speculation (laughs) was lots of fun and uh go
0: perseverance go perseverance Join me next time as we continue our journey to look for life beyond Earth. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist.